Amos, why don't you turn to Amos chapter six. And by the way, your, your assignment for Wednesday night, if you wanna read in advance uh, chapters three, four, and five, we're gonna tackle chapter six uh, right now uh, because chapter six kind of stands by itself. And uh, Amos has a message for the people of Samaria and Bethel, the Northern 10 tribes. And uh, we learned on Wednesday night, it's an interesting little uh, uh, challenge for Amos. Amos is going to the hoity-toity, fancy-schmancy area of the Northern 10 tribes. Sort of the, you know, like if you could picture in your mind's eye, Amos is a, he's kind of a, a hick. He's from sort of a hick town. The hick town's called Tekoa. And Tekoa was where the hick herdsman would be. Why do you say hick herdsman? Well, aren't all herdsmen the same? Not necessarily. Um, well, the word for herdman, when it talks about Amos, is, is used only twice in the entire Bible. And it's speaking of a specific kind of shepherd of a specific kind of sheep. And we learned on Wednesday, these sheep are kind of unattractive, scrawny, sort of stringy hair. They don't have the nice fluffy wool. They're just stringy haired, sort of hippie sheep. And they're, they're not really the, the most valuable sheep. And those were the sheep that Amos was a shepherd of. Um, and not only was he a, a herdman of the hippie sheep, but he was also a fig picker. A what? He picked figs. So we got this hick from Tekoa that's a fig picking hippie sheep herdsman from Tekoa going up to Lake Oswego <laughs> and talking to all the people in their Mercedes and their fancy, like literally you got to kind of picture in your mind's eye, this hick herdsman is going into Bethel and Samaria where the wealth and the opulence and the, 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 there's kind of an attitude like we're the best. And who's this hick from Tekoa, south of Jerusalem? And that's the, that's the deal. And he's got a, a word of warning and a word of woe. And it's really directed at the rich, the wealthy people of that place in that time. Here's a question that we need to kind of maybe think about before we dive into this chapter. Is it wrong to be rich? Have you thought about that? Is it wrong to be rich? Now, some of you, of course not. Um, and, and that's true. There, there's conditions where it is not wrong to be a wealthy person. Um, the Bible even tells us God blessed certain people and wanted to bless them with wealth. Remember Solomon? Solomon was given one wish and the Lord says, just whatever you want, I'll do it. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And the Lord said, Solomon, you've done well in asking for wisdom. And because you didn't ask for wealth or power or prestige, I'm gonna give you wisdom, but I'm also gonna give you wealth. I'm gonna bless you with wealth. And it's interesting because Solomon is arguably the wealthiest king that ever lived on the earth. Um, and it's legendary and even biblically proportioned wealth. Um, silver became like gravel on the ground during the reign of Solomon, the Bible says. Um, so it was just that kind of wealth that Solomon had. And that was meant to be a blessing of God. Now Solomon um, turned that blessing into a curse and people are good at that. We're good at turning things that God meant for blessing and we can turn around, Solomon did that. But it's not necessarily wrong to be wealthy. God has blessed people that. Um, one of the examples we see in the, in the Bible and in the church of Jesus Christ is there's some people that have a gift of earning money. And it's wrong if they handle that wrongly, but it's beautiful when they handle it rightly. In Romans 12, there's a list of the motivational gifts that are in the church. You know, and, and one, like for, for me, I, I, I love that I get to teach the Bible and teaching is one of those gifts that people are given by God. But one of the lists there is an interesting one, the gift of giving. Some people have the gift of giving 
And, um, and there was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He was the guy who gave the, the tomb. We might say he lent the tomb to Jesus. I mean, I know you don't do that every day. Hey, you can borrow my tomb for a few days, three days maybe. Um, and then on the third day, I want that back. Uh, like that's, that's, that's kind of funny that Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb over to Jesus. And, and the thing about that is it was the tomb of a wealthy man. That's the one thing we do know about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a, a wealthy dude who was giving. He just gave this, this tomb spot to Jesus. And, and, and really that's a neat picture because in the church, we find there are people that are gifted in giving. I learned this as a young man, as I was journeying to Africa. I've been to Africa quite a few times. And um, the guy that really got me going over there was a guy named Jerry Swanson and his wife, Jan, amazing couple. Um, but they, they were interesting to me because when, when I met them where they lived here in the States, they lived in this beautiful home, big, you know, fancy. I thought of it more of a mansion, big fancy house. Um, and then after meeting with them in their house, I met with them in Africa in the middle of the bush of Burkina Faso um, out, out you know, in the, near the Sahara Desert. And they were just happy as clams out there. Jan, this classy, you know, she'd fit right in with Lake Oswego ladies with their Mercedes. Like Jan, very classy. But she also seemed to be just as happy sleeping in the dirt of the Sahara Desert with the Africans next to their mud huts. Like we would just go there and Jan and Jerry, and what they did is they took all their money and just were helping the people, the church in Africa. And Jerry was this amazing guy. I'm like, Jerry, where do you get all your money? He's like, the Lord's just blessed me. And, and then as I got to know him over the years, here's what he would do. He and Jan, they'd just spend all their money on church and feeding starving people and giving medical supplies and bringing the gospel to the people there in Africa. And then they'd go home, Jerry would go home and he'd just build a subdivision. And he, and he just whipped it up, subdivision, make $20 million and then go back to Africa and just start spending it. Like, um, wouldn't you like to have that gift? Um, that's, that was Jerry's thing. I think the Lord blessed him with wealth because he was one who was willing to distribute the wealth that God gave him. And, and I watched that in a, in a way that was really kind of um, enlightening for me as a young man to see a guy that had that gift, the gift of giving. So um, man, the Lord can use the wealthy and the Lord can bless the wealthy person. But is it, is it wrong to be rich? There are some conditions where absolutely yes. Let me give you some biblical ones really quick, just so we can kind of understand the problem with the Northern 10 tribes and Amos and what he's about to do here. Is it wrong to be rich? Yes, if you're prideful and arrogant about your wealth. Um, you guys know people like that. They're the people that won't just say, I'm wealthier than you, but they have their ways of making sure you know that. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's people that kind of, yeah, you know, sort of sneak out their wealth and let you know uh, you're lower than they are because they're more wealthy. And there's an arrogance and a pridefulness. And, and it comes to, you know, from the person that's like, I'm a self-made man and I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I'm a hard worker and I did the, I, 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 and it's pride and it's arrogance. And yes, the Bible tells us that you're not to boast in your wit riches, Jeremiah 9.23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So if you're a wealthy person, it's great, as long as you're not glorying in your riches. If you're gonna glory in something, glory that you know the Lord and understand him as a loving, kind, 
God full of judgment and righteousness. Like this is what the Bible tells us. So yes, it's wrong if you're rich, if you're arrogant or prideful about it. Number two, yes, it's wrong to be rich if you're lusting after wealth or coveting other people's wealth. Oh man, I wish I could be as rich as Bezos or Elon. I wish I had as much money. Man, did you see Tesla stock a couple weeks ago? Uh, just skyrocket. Like Musk got, um, you know, twice as rich as he already was. He was already the richest man in the world, all in like a day. Did you guys see that? I mean, it's kind of amazing to see what happens with these super, super wealthy in the world today. But one thing that you gotta be careful of is not to be a person who's lusting or coveting after wealth. First Timothy chapter six, verse 10, Paul was speaking to Timothy, who happened to be the pastor at Ephesus. And the reason that's important to this study is because Ephesus was a place of great wealth. And so um, Paul had a lot to say to Timothy, the new young pastor of Ephesus. Hey, I got a bunch of words to the wealthy. Um, and, and this is one of the things he says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Um, Paul says, man, they've, they've gone off the track. They're, they're coveting after wealth. And so their faith has been derailed. Um, so Paul warns, man, if you're coveting after money, you're derailing your faith and you're gonna be pierced through with many sorrows. Um, yes, it's wrong to be rich, number whatever we're on, if you're hoarding all the wealth to yourself. If you're just building up your little empire and things that you uh, want to do and all that, couple scriptures, 1 Timothy 6, again, Paul to Timothy, the Ephesus church, he says, charge them that are rich in this world, um, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So if you're wealthy you, and you're saying, the Lord has given this to me to enjoy, then that's great, praise the Lord. But what are you supposed to do with it? hoard it to yourself? No, verse 18, that they do good that be rich in good works, ready to distribute, to give, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Man, this is packed full of really important um, message for the rich people, the wealthy in the world, that they're not high-minded and prideful. That's that one point we made earlier but also that they're willing to give and, and um, the word here to distribute, to give to people that are need, in need. And what are you doing in so doing? You're laying up in store, you know, treasure, good foundation against the time to come. That is when you go to heaven. If you're a wealthy person who's giving your wealth and helping, um, then the Bible says you're, you're, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you in a sense of rewards. Now, the second scripture I wanna show you here, because this is where Jesus jumps in on this conversation. He says in Luke 12, 16, it says, uh, Jesus calls someone a fool. If Jesus is calling someone a fool, you might wanna know who that is. Um, Luke 12, he spake a parable, Jesus did, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater or bigger barns. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods and laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. 
then who shall thy things be which thou hast provided? So is he that lay, layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Interesting phrase at the very end there, not rich toward God. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, there's a wealth that somehow God counts that the world doesn't. And the person who invests in heaven and in eternity and, and giving and being willing to distribute, the Lord says, you're, you're becoming rich toward God. Um, I don't wanna be a person who's rich in this world, but not rich toward God. That's this fool. And he just piles up more of his stuff and he's getting more and more money only to kick the bucket. And the Lord says, then everybody else will take your money. And what do you have to show for it? And, and that's why he calls this man a fool. <clears throat> so yes, you, you know, the, the, the idea of being rich is wrong if you're hoarding it all for yourself. Um, and then yes, finally, uh, being rich is wrong if you're doing it through dishonest gain. Um, or doing it, you know, sometimes people get rich off the backs of the poor or by lying or cheating or being illegal or whatever. There's people that do that. Proverbs chapter 21, verse six says, a fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. Um, so if you're trying to get rich and you're cutting corners in your business or doing things that are dishonest, the Lord says, yeah, that's a short-lived endeavor and it's a deadly snare and uh, what a warning, word of warning. So, so on this question, you know, um, uh, is, is it wrong to be rich? Is it sinful to be rich? Well, it sure can be. Um, and one of the things the Bible does, if you read through the Bible, is it talks about wealth and there's good people that are wealthy and all this, but it does all throughout the scripture sort of give massive warnings to the wealthy. Jesus gave this word that is seemingly impossible when Jesus said, it's, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that make anybody nervous? Now, um, for years I'd heard someone tell me, Brett, in Jerusalem there used to be this ancient part of the wall where there was this little hole in the wall where men could go through. At night, they would close the big gates of the city. And if you were just wanting to get in the city, you'd go through the eye of the needle. Was, that's what they called the gate. So I did all kinds of research looking for that gate and I never found it. And so I started thinking, somebody made that up. Uh, the, the camel can't go through the little gate, the eye of the needle. So I was just taking literally, Jesus said, you know, I have a needle. I pictured a little sewing thread and needle and trying to get a camel through there. Um, well, one day we were walking in Jerusalem, minding our own business, just kind of hanging out. I think we were eating some ice cream or something there in Jerusalem, um, old Jerusalem. But there was this Russian Orthodox guy standing there and he's just standing there. And, and I looked up and there's this big Russian Orthodox church. And I'm like, hey, what's up with this church? Every Jerusalem church has a story. So I'm like, hey, what's the deal with this? He said, well, this is the church of the eye of the needle. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, the, the, we, we built this church over where the eye of the needle was. So I said, can I see it? He, he took me down and Debbie, Debbie and I got to go way down into the bowels of this church um, and, and way down, and you have to go down because of the strata. Back in the first century during the time of Christ, you have to go down about 40 feet uh, in the strata. But you can see the ancient city wall that's outside. It goes down and if you just get a shovel and keep digging, the wall just keeps going down into the ground because of all the centuries of civilizations that have been there. We don't see that here in America because we're only a couple hundred years of building things. But there, we went down in the church and followed the old city wall into the, even this, almost the Solomon era of the, of the wall. And then he showed me this little place that was a place in the wall where you could sneak through. Some of us, it was a little tighter squeeze than others. <laughs> 
but it was pretty cool. Debbie and I got to go through this and he said, this was the eye of the needle. They'd close the gate at night and if a person, they'd have guards there at that little tiny, you couldn't run an army through this little hole. It was a, still a safe uh, choke point that they could control. And so it was kind of interesting. And, and he said, this is the eye of the needle. So I thought, well, maybe it's true. Maybe that is it. And maybe that's what Jesus was referring to. But the good news is it didn't undo what Jesus said. Still, it'd be a problem to get a camel through that. Um, whether you're talking about the little eye of a needle with thread or the little gate that I went through, you still need a blender and a funnel to make this camel, and it's not so good on the camel, if you know what I'm saying. Either way, it's, it seems impossible. And that's what Jesus was saying. So this massive word of warning from Jesus, hey, the rich people in the world, watch out. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, how rich is rich? Because some of you are like, preach it, Brett. I hope Elon Musk is listening to this sermon right now. Um, but maybe some of you are forgetting uh, who's really rich. Well, as it turns out, I have done some research on what is considered rich in this world. Well, according to Charles Schwab, he did a, a survey in 2019, modern wealth survey from Charles Schwab, and he, he claims once you have a personal you know, assets of $2.3 million in personal net worth, then you can call yourself wealthy. 2.3 million is the number that Charles Swad came up with. On the other hand, people responding to a survey in 2019, a survey from the market research website, YouGov, um, they said you, basically if you wanna be considered wealthy, you have to earn $100,000 a year. If you earn $100,000 a year, you are wealthy in America. Now there's some other findings. Paradoxically, 55% of those whose assets ranged from $1 million to $5 million, um, those people, 55% of those people don't consider themselves wealthy. Can you imagine that? A person that's worth $5 million, they're saying, yeah, I'm still kind of broke. That's, that was from USA Today, a study. Another shocking study found that people who struggle financially, just struggle paying the bills week to week, um, have, those people are four times more likely to be happy than people with a network worth of $5 million or greater. Um, you know, when people think, oh, if I could just be rich, then I'd be happy. Well, as it turns out, uh, you are four times more likely to be happy broke than if you're worth more than $5 million. And, and this, this makes sense to me, just on an informal survey. When, when you drive around little towns, like if you go into Eastern Oregon somewhere and go through some little farm town and you just find a bunch of happy people. You drive around Lake Oswego with people in their fancy Mercedes and their wealthy uh, houses and they're, get off the lawn and put on a mask and ah! and, and they, just, they just seem really unhappy to me. I'm sorry if you live in Lake Oswego, but I'm just saying, as I drive through Lake Oswego in my Ford F-150, um, I get all these dirty looks and people really mad and they just seem kind of angry to me. And so that, that, that statistic does seem to uh, make sense to me. And so, but, but you know, you said, yeah, Brett, let Lake Oswego have it then if it's not Elon Musk. Um, but wait a minute, uh, what about all of us? No matter where you live or whatever, what is rich? Are you rich? That's kind of an interesting question you should probably ask yourself because the Bible says a lot to the rich about the rich. So are you, how rich is rich? Well, um, there was one guy that did a, an exercise that I thought was interesting, and this might be um, a little bit humbling, but from a standpoint of material wealth, Americans have a very difficult time realizing how rich we really are. This guy did a mental exercise um, by Robert 
uh, Heilbronner, who said, help us uh, to understand the wealth that we actually have in America. If you take the average person in the world, and you have to understand, if you've never been to a third world country where you know, millions and millions, even billions of people live in much less than we do, he said, if you wanna kind of be more of an average person, this is what you have to do. Go home after church today. And he said, number one, take out all the furniture in your home except for one table and two chairs. Um, you, all your bed, your mattress is gone. You have one blanket and a pad for, on the ground to sleep on. Number two, Take away all your clothing, except for your oldest dress or suit, uh, your shirt or you know, blouse. Leave only one pair of shoes. Number three, you have to empty your pantry and refrigerator, except for a small bag of flour, some sugar, some salt, a few potatoes, and maybe some onions and a dish of dried beans. Number four, dismantle your bathroom. Shut off the running water, remove all electrical wiring from your house. Number five, take away the house itself and move the family into the tool shed. Um, number six, move your tool shed from Lake Oswego or Sherwood or wherever and move it into a shanty town with a bunch of other tool sheds. Um, leave only one AM and FM radio for the whole shanty town. Um, move, to the, move the nearest hospital or health clinic at least 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge of the hospital instead of a doctor. Number nine, Throw away all your bank books, stock certificates, pension plans, insurance policies, and leave the family cash hoard of $10, if you wanna be average in the world. Number 10, give the head of the family a few acres to cultivate on which you can raise a few hundred dollars of cash crops, of which one third will go to your landlord and one tenth to the money to the lenders. And then number 11, lop off 25 or more years of your life expectancy. That's, that's pretty heavy. Like this guy saying, by comparison, how rich are we and, and, and our wealth that we have compared to the rest of the world average? Um, and and you, you may not believe that, but if you have traveled around the world, especially these third world countries, you do see, man, we are blessed out of our socks. And the rest of the world would view all of us as the extreme wealthy in the world. And, and it's hard for us to be convinced of that. Well, that's the problem that Amos has in front of him. He's gonna convince these people that they're filthy rich and they've got all kinds of problems because of it. But these guys are not gonna to listen to the hick farmer, Tacoa sheep herdman, fig picker. They're not gonna to listen to him. We know the end of this story. But that's why this chapter I think is important for us. And let's take a look at it. Chapter six of, of Amos, the prophet. Let's, let's take a look. It starts out with these words, woe unto them. Woe unto them. Now stop right there. Come on, Brett, that's only three words. Let's get going. Um, well, well, we'll get going here in a minute, but the word woe is used 50 times by the prophets. Isaiah was the guy who said, woe unto you, woe unto them. And he even says, woe is me. Apparently he had a horse named Isby. Um, sorry. But anyway, this word woe is a heavy, heavy word. Um, it, it was sort of a red flag. When a prophet says, woe unto them, people go, what, huh? What is he saying? Woe. It's, it's, it, the word woe, it means to stop, look, and listen. It, it, it's, it's an interjection usually of lamentation and shock to say woe unto you. Like, what? what? What's the problem? And, I, and Isaiah used this over and over. Amos uses this phrase, woe unto them. Um, 
uh, I'm reminded of that, that pastor who had his horse and, and it was a good horse, but he was selling it for a fairly cheap price. And this guy's like, why is this horse so cheap? And he said, well, the problem is if you wanna go, you have to say, praise the Lord. And if you wanna stop, you have to say, amen. Uh, it's just the way I trained it. And the guy's like, no big deal, that's cool. So he pays the money and he gets on the horse and rides off. Well, he tries to ride off and he says, giddy up. And then the horse doesn't move. Uh, and so he, oh yeah, yeah, praise the Lord. And cloppity clop, off he goes. He's like, that's pretty cool. And he says, praise the Lord. And he gets, gets going a little faster and faster. Pretty soon he's really going full run. You know, he's like, wow, that's a nice horse. And then he sees a cliff off in the future and he's like, uh-oh, I better, I better stop. He says, whoa, but the horse just keeps running. Wow, and he's like, oh no, I forgot. What's the word? What's the word to stop? And, and, and finally in desperation, the cliff's coming. He says, Lord, please save me from this horse in Jesus' name, amen. The horse, just because the word's amen, stops right on the edge of the cliff. And then he says, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, let's see, where are we? Oh yeah, whoa. Yes, whoa. Woe unto them. And it's like a heavy word, like you, you guys are going down. It's kind of, this is a big, big warning. So he goes on and he says, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye to Kina, uh, Kalna and see, and from thence go to Hamath, the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Or their border greater than your border? Ye that put away or put far away the evil day and cause the seat of violence to come near. Now, while uh, Amos is a fig picking goat herder, um, you know, sheep herder. Uh, he is actually fairly articulate. And what, what is interesting about the original language of the Bible, the book of uh, Amos in the Hebrew language, um, Amos says stuff that's pretty heavy and uses words that we don't even have a word to translate into the English. We try, and I'm gonna give you a few uh, red flags that are gonna come up here in a second. But what, what's, what's being said here? Well, if we break this chapter into three little compartments, the first thing he indicts them with is this idea of their boastful complacency. That's the first thing. They're, they're boastful, complacent. Hey, we're, we're good. We're gonna rest on our laurels because we're living large and our, our area of Samaria is protected, impenetrable, we're safe from any peril or trouble. They're, they're, they're living sort of a boastful place of complacency. Um, the, the word trust there is an interesting word in verse um, one. He says, you know, one of the ease in Zion that trust in the mountain of Samaria. Um, the word trust in the Hebrew, uh, there's no English word really that, that translates. So they use the word trust, but the word bata, it means to feel safe, to be confident, but also unsuspecting. The idea, there's an implication that something's looming. So you might say, it might take two words, English words to say the one word bata, it means misplaced trust or, you know, um, overconfidence in something. That's the idea of this word, bata. So he's, he's basically saying, woe unto you guys that are at ease, chilling out in Zion, because you put your misplaced confidence in the fact that you live at the mountain of Samaria. And, he, and then, then he uses these other towns and lists these cities and says, what do you think, you're better? 
Do you think you're better than Kalna and the fence that went around Hamat uh, and, and the city of Gath of the Philistines? Why did he use these three cities? These three cities were most famous for being sort of fortified, impenetrable, unbeatable cities. The funny thing, by the way, is all of these cities got crushed eventually. But these people of Samaria are sitting around, we're, we're better than even Gath of the Philistines or, or Kalna or Hamat. Um, by the way, Gath was this amazing Philistine city. Who was the most famous person from Gath, anybody? Goliath, the giant. There were giants that lived in Gath. Um, uh, several years back after we sent our tour group from Israel home uh, in their jet, uh, we stayed back, got an armored vehicle and went down by the Gaza Strip and kind of hung around and, and shot some video. But we hiked uh, up the, the tell of, of Gath and I brought some of the video footage we shot there. That was kind of, it's kind of cool for you guys to see the city that's being referred to by Amos. So you, you basically walk up to this, this, this cliff uh, and this, it's this tell. Now a tell is piles of civilizations of, for centuries and millennia really. Um, and so they're up on these high mountains, but this cliff of Gath, it looked like, you know, death. Um, no civilization is there today, they're, they're destroyed. But as we walked up this, this cliff and went to the top of this tell, you could start to see the archeological ruins of the palaces and the houses. By the way, there was an Israeli helicopter that came and then dropped a rope and like 12 commandos came out uh, down the rope and ran off into the woods right next to us. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. You don't see that every day uh, in America. Um, but uh, that was kind of a fun thing to watch. But anyway, um, we hiked up to the top of this and this is where Gath, the city of Gath is, where the little sign is there up at the top of the mountain. You see the, the five Philistine cities, you know, Gath and Ectalon and um, uh, Ashkelon and Ekron, all these uh, places, you know, the five Philistine cities. But anyway, oh, there's a little Philistine bug. Um, <laughs> I thought those bugs were cool. Uh, but, um, but all that's to say, um, this place now sits in ruin. And it's just kind of interesting because that's the mentality of all of us. What, you think anybody's better than America? Um, but greater civilizations have been destroyed in times past. That's what the Lord's saying. The Jews are saying, hey, we're living in Samaria. What area? Some area. Uh, this, is, this place is protected. But like Gath, you know, they said, what do you think you're, the, the Lord is basically, do you think you're better than Gath? Because the implication is you aren't, but look at Gath, we see it in its ruin. Those are the archeological digs and some of the palaces and storage rooms and stuff. Um, it was really kind of an, a cool day of just checking out these five Philistine cities. But, but all that to say, I wonder if you and I, if we're not careful, we can have the same mentality, putting a false sense of security in the fact that we're Americans. We have an American military might and nobody can touch the United States of America. We're the best. But you know, what that is, is putting your trust in government. Um, you know, I do really respect our military and I love the talent and some of the people and personnel we have. I don't really trust our government, however, with that military. Um, I think the military is not trusting the government today and the pull out of Afghanistan, all that. We can talk about how uh, reckless we've been. And, and, and the more I, I see it, I, I kind of think, oh Lord, um, we need to follow like the psalmist. Some put their trust in horses and chariots, but as for us, we put our trust in the Lord. That, that should be our operating procedure. But, but the problem is these people, right in the first three verses, we see 
their boastful complacency. Hey, we're, we're squared away. We're better than Kelna, Hamat, and Gath of the Philistines. And in verse three, he, he, he says, you that put far away the evil day. In other words, they're putting off something that's coming. They're putting off the fact that there could be trouble coming. Now, you and I know the end of the story. These people thought, who could mess with us? They had a king at that time called Jeroboam. For you histor historians, it was Jeroboam II. And he was in fact a powerful leader. He, he subdued most of the kingdoms around uh, the Northern 10 tribes during this time when Amos comes. You'd almost hear the people saying, we've got Jeroboam. So what do you say in Amos? But we also know the history of this. This all happened after Amos gives this prophecy, a group of people started to rise up that became extremely fierce and horrifying called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians would come and crush these people and they weren't even a speed bump. The Northern 10 tribes weren't even a speed bump to slow down the Assyrian empire. But what did they do? The story is quite graphic. They slaughtered many people, but the people they didn't kill, they put hooks, like big giant fish hooks with a barb. They put hooks in their noses. Some of you probably remember, cool. Um, um, yeah, they got these big old fish hooks in their nose and then they chained people together with hooks in their noses and then they dragged them off into captivity into the land of Assyria where they would be made slaves and those Jews would be lost forever. They'd sort of become assimilated into the Assyrian empire. This is what we know actually happened. This is Amos the prophet trying to say, you guys, you're, you're counting in your, your, your strength and your own military might and your wealth and your, your, your fancy houses, but it's just boastful complacency and they thought that they were better than all the other nations. We have to watch out for that as Americans. Well, all that to say, that's the first thing, boastful complacency. The second challenge Amos nails them down for is they're indulgent luxury. These people were living large. Let's read on in verse four. Speaking of these people, he says, you guys, that verse four, lie upon beds of ivory and stretch, mark the word stretch there, stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. That chant, interesting word, chant is better translated quiver, or you might say bust a move. What? Yeah, they're partying down. And they're just having a great old time as they're drinking their wine. How do they chant and drink? They that chant the sound of the vial and the instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. The word there, affliction of Joseph, might mean the breach of Joseph, or maybe better translated, this is an idiom of the Jews. They'd say, you know, the, they would say the affliction of Joseph, but what it means is the destruction of Israel. What is this saying? This is saying that, that they could care less that Israel's going down because they've got their houses of ivory, they're busting a move, they're eating their meat, and they're drinking their wine from bowls. Hey, who cares? Israel's going down, whatever. That was their attitude. Does anybody get the sense that there's a group of people in our, in our nation? It's not that they don't even really care that America's spiraling, spiraling downward. It's almost like they really want that to happen. Do you see that? Is it just me? There's a group of people that, you know, really encouraged the burning of Portland over the, you know, two summers. We watched hundreds of nights of, of Portland become, you know, Portland Geddon. 
Um, if you go to Portland downtown today, it's still a total wreck. And it's really sad. And you think, what, what, what happened you know, to a great city in Portland? And, and it's all over America. There's, there's kind of this, eh, we don't care. America's not a great country. And there's certain people that are like, yeah, whatever. We don't care that it's going down. That was the case with these people. As long as they had their thing, as long as they were safe in their ivory houses and drinking their wine from bowls. Hey, by the way, if you're drinking wine from a bowl, <laughs> might I just suggest you are an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, you know, you go through little cups of wine, that's fine. But that's, you're an alcoholic. And that's what, that's what he's saying. Amos is saying, man, you guys are party animals laying in your ivory beds. Now, now here's again where the Hebrew language is, is really rich and we miss something. Those that stretch out on their couches. Um, Brett, I do that. I stretch out on my couch. Uh, what's wrong with that? Well, the word stretch, if you look it up again in the Hebrew, the word is an interesting word, uh, uh, serah which means to go free, overhang, grow luxuriously, but also to abound with superfluity, huh? Um, if you look at your margin, some of your Bibles have a margin reference to that word stretch because it's, it's a, another word. There's no English word that properly translates from this word sarah. Um, your margin, some of them say abounding with superfluity. What's superfluity? It's funny, that's a word that I knew when I was a little kid because my dad used funny words just to be funny, I think sometimes. Um, and I learned a lot of, of my um, vocabulary from my dad. Like when I was six years old, Brett, I need you to do some chores out in the garage, okay. So we go out in the garage and there's all this stuff laying all over the garage floor. My dad would say something like this. Now, Brett, your job today is to clean up all this superfluous material. Um, who says that? Some people say, just pick up all the junk and put it in the trash or whatever. But my dad had to say, superfluous material. Um, and we all thought that was funny, you know, growing up. But I had to look it up. Oh, what's superfluous material? And it's just things that are not necessary, things that shouldn't be here, things that are out of place. Um, and, and, and that's the idea. These, these people were doing something that was out of place and not necessary. But here's the thing that the, the, the Hebrew word you kind of miss. It can also imply sexual impropriety. So what these people are doing is they're drinking alcohol from their bowls and they're partying with their music, but they're also stretching themselves on their couch. And the idea is probably with sexual orgies and parties and what have you. These people were, were pagan people doing pagan things. Now here's where it gets really interesting. This is where I love the Bible um, when it comes up with stuff and archeological digs only confirm what the Bible says. I love that. The, um, if there's one reason to believe the Bible is true is all the archeological evidence that matches perfectly. This is one of those things. When uh, um, Amos says, man, you're, you're, you got your ivory beds and all your ivory thing. Did you know in 1931, there was amazing archeological dig that took place in uh, Samaria, this very place Hosea, I keep saying Hosea, Amos is prophesying. And they did some digs there. A guy named J.W. Crowfoot, who was uh, basically a student of Dr. John Gerstein, if you know your archeological people, these are big names in the Middle East archeological digs. But J.W. Crowfoot excavated Samaria in 1931, and he found exactly what the prophet Amos is saying. Um, let me read you a paragraph of what he found in the houses of Samaria. He said, ivory plaques, sculpted panels, inlaid pieces of furniture, 
furniture dowels found with um, bias reliefs on them, like um, uh, there were uh, in, in embedded ivory and abalone lotus lilies, papyrus lions, bulls, deer, winged figures in human form, sphinxes, and here, check this out, figures of the Egyptian gods, Isis and Horus. Now, wait a minute, you're saying, wait, aren't these supposed to be good Jews? Yes. What do they have in their houses? The lap of luxury, all kinds of fancy ivory embedded and inlaid things that are beautiful furniture and stuff. Uh, but they also had their little Horus and Isis idols of the gods and goddesses of Egypt. These Jews were lost. They were wealthy, they thought they were safe, they were having their great old time, resting at ease in their parties and all this. And Amos is saying, the Lord sees this and he's calling you out. The superfluity, an unnecessary or excessively large amount of something that they shouldn't be doing or having. And they're, they're doing this while they're drinking from their bowls. And the, the Lord is now gonna bring them to the next section and we'll call this the third and final section, their looming calamity. They thought they were living large. This hick prophet comes and says, man, you guys are living large, but there's pending doom because of your sinful behavior. And you don't even see it. So let's read how he gives them the warning. That's verses seven to the very end. It says there in verse seven, therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. That's exactly what happened. Who were the first people dragged off by the Assyrians? The people of Samaria. Um, most of them were killed. Many of them were hauled off with hooks in their noses. There were a few people that actually came back who had been intermixed with the Assyrians and they became a people group known called the Samaritans that the Jews ended up hating. They were sort of a half breed of Jew and Assyrian because of this invasion. But who were the first ones hauled off with hooks in their noses? These very people that were living large in their fancy ivory homes. Therefore they shall go captive with the first that go captive. And the banquet, the party of them that stretched themselves, that's that word again, um, shall be removed. The first people that are gonna go are the party animals uh, that are drinking from their bowls. Verse eight, the Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts. Now, before we hear what God swears and says, isn't that funny? Remember when you were a little kid? Um, I would have gotten in trouble if I would have said, I swear to God. My parents forbade that because they feel like that was uh, using the Lord's name in vain. And it is. Um, so I never said that as a kid, but all my buddies, if they really wanted to make a problem, oh, I swear to God, they say. Well, that's a thing that goes all the way back through history. People swear on something that's greater than themselves. The Jews have a thing, even to this day, I swear to the temple because the, there's nothing better than the temple. But when you're God, who do you swear to? Who's greater than God? No one. So what does he do? I swear to myself. That's what he says. Did you see that right here? It says this in verse eight, the Lord God hath sworn by himself and said, the Lord God of hosts. Now, what does he say? This is heavy. I abhor, that's a strong word. I abhor the excellency of Jacob. The word excellency might, in some of your newer translations, might be pride or arrogance. The Lord says, I abhor all the beauty and excellence that you guys are prideful and arrogant about. That's what he's saying. And I hate his palaces. Therefore, will I deliver up the city with all that is in therein. Man, the Lord says, I'm giving this city over to the enemy that's coming. They don't know it's the Assyrians, but God knows that that pending doom, the looming calamity is coming. The Lord calls it out. Verse nine, 
Um, now, by the way, verses nine, 10, and 11 is gonna be a language thing that's tricky also. Again, Amos uses some very uh, eloquent language, even though he's kind of a hick guy, uh, a little bit of a J. Vernon McGee scholar, but sort of sounds a little bit hicky. Um, that's, that's Amos. Um, but what he's gonna say here, I'll just give you a freebie. Um, you can put 10 guys hiding in a house, but the Assyrians are still coming and those 10 guys are gonna die of a disease because God has ordained it. That's, that's what this is saying. Let, let me read, you'll see what I mean as I get to it. Verse nine, it shall come to pass if there remain 10 men in one house that they shall die and a man's uncle shall take him up and he that burneth him to bring out the bones of the, out of the house and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, no. Then, the, then he shall say, hold thy tongue, for we may not uh, make mention of the name of the Lord. By this time, they're, they're walking on eggshells saying, don't say a word, God might kill us too. Um, they're sort of afraid that God would punish them also. Or they're almost like worried, maybe the Lord forgot about us and that's why we're not dead yet. Like that's gonna be the, the sense. For verse 11, for behold, the Lord commandeth that he will smite the great house with breaches and the little house with clefts. So this is the Lord just saying, I'm gonna wipe out all these fancy places of the Northern tribes because of their rebellion and their misguided trust. Um, they're say, the Lord's saying, you guys are going down. Verse 12, shall horses run upon the rock? No, is the answer. These are rhetorical questions of obvious no. Shall horses run upon the rock? No. Will one plow there the rocky soil with oxen? No. For you have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Again, for speed, what is it to turn, you know, uh, judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock? This is an idiom again, that means you're doing things that are illogical, things that don't make sense. You don't do that stuff. That's the idea, that's the literary uh, technique that he's using. Like he's, he's stating, you guys are doing the ridiculous thing that makes no sense at all. Verse 13, you which rejoice in a thing of not. There's a phrase that's interesting. Do you rejoice in things that are nothing? Things that don't matter? Like what are you passionate about and get excited about? It's interesting how we get excited about things that really are nothing. That's, that's the Lord calling these people out. You which rejoice in a thing of not, which say we have not taken to us, or have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? Hey, we're, the horn was a symbol of authority and power. Haven't we taken up our own power? But the Lord's saying that power is nothing. You rejoice in something that's weak and nothing. Verse 14, but behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamat into the river of the wilderness. Now, some of your versions, that last verse was very different than what I just read. It's okay. It's, it's a, a debate on where and what the Lord's talking about, but we know what he's saying. The Lord's gonna raise up the Assyrian army and they're gonna come in and wipe out the Northern 10 tribes of Israel. The end. That's the end of that chapter. You're like, Brett, thanks. That was a really encouraging chapter there in Amos chapter six. Can we go now? Not yet. Um, because that's the bad news. The bad news is these are God's people living in total rebellion and, and they didn't even want to acknowledge their looming calamity that was coming and they could care less. They just said, hey, eat, drink, and to be merry today for tomorrow we die. So they had their, you know, if I could sum up chapter six, it really is misplaced confidence in their wealth, 
in their financial portfolio, in their own military, in their own government, and they, they could care less about God and they were just living large for themselves. And they ended up wiped out. And this is a chapter that remains in the Bible for all of us centuries later to read. And you say, why? Why would we wanna read this? And the answer to me is very obvious. People miss this. I, I get from time to time, Brett, I don't believe you teach through the Bible. Um, how do those people from thousands of years ago relate to today? I, I, I like to talk about things that are more relevant, you know, or things that are, man, as I read it, I see these people, chapter six, you might as well be talking about us. Our, our misplaced confidence in, you know, Biden or Trump our misplaced confidence in our military and our, our former glory as a nation, um, our misplaced confidence in our you know, 401ks and our financial portfolios and our investments. I mean, it's the same thing. And, and a lot of people today are just saying, yeah, whatever, our country's going down. As long as I'm okay, who cares? Same thing's happening today. And the reason I bring this up is because that's the bad news. And really Amos goes and talks to them. And I believe God sends Amos to give them a chance to repent, but they, they don't. They don't listen to Amos and they go down in flames. In the same way, the Lord sends the book of Amos to us to give us the same admonition. Man, let not the wise man glory in his riches. Us to not be stingy and keep all of our stuff to ourselves. And, and whether we wanna admit it, we are the wealthy of the world today. And how are we doing with that? You say, Brett, is there a looming calamity coming our way? Well, there is. The Bible tells us that God's wrath is gonna be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That's coming. But there's good news. This is the good news. The Lord says that he would that none should perish. Isn't that amazing that God's heart still, Second Peter tells us that God would that none should perish, but everyone would come to repentance and be saved. That's the heart of the Lord. And you and I have the joy and the blessing of knowing, yeah, judgment is coming upon this world and the wrath is ultimately coming. And there is a looming calamity. But good news, you and I, if we're saved, if we're forgiven for our sins, if we repent before the Lord and, and get on the correct side of this thing, then you and I are not part of that calamity. We're the ones who get to be saved and pulled up out of this world and go to heaven for all eternity. If you're saved, if you've accepted Christ. I love the gospel message because no matter what you read in the Bible, people say, you're just reading doom and gloom. That's all the Old Testament is. Well, it's not. Because yes, you know, Amos chapter six is a doom and gloom chapter. I'll agree with you. But you and I have the boom and zoom mentality, not the doom and gloom, boom and zoom. What's that? Well, when the sound of the trumpet comes, you and I as Christians, man, we get to go up and be in heaven with the Lord. Or should you die as a believer in Christ, you go straight to heaven. The rest of the world in its doom is, is when they die, they go to hell. The Bible says that. I'm sorry if you don't like that or if you say, I don't know if I appreciate that about the Bible. The Bible says it. Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. Um, and it's a real place. But good news, the Lord Jesus came so that you wouldn't have to go there. So what we need to do as a rich, wealthy people is to repent of our sins and say, oh Lord, save us. Forgive us for our sins. Help us not to have this mentality of Amos chapter six, the people of North Israel there in Samaria. You know, it's an important thing for you to check yourself and say, Lord, where am I at with you? That's what these chapters are meant to do is to make us think, Lord, is there something I need to do? 
The, the biggest thing you need to do, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent of your sins. That is to acknowledge your sins before God and then be forgiven for your sins by accepting the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. You gotta do that. If you haven't done it, why? Well, Brent, I kind of think God's gonna send me to heaven because I went to church all my life as a kid. Doesn't save you. You're totally delusional if you think that's what gets you to heaven. Well, I was born in America and Americans are generally of the Christian faith. So God bless America, um, in God we trust, I'm going to heaven because of that. If that's what you think, you're really delusional. Um, your Bible says nothing of that. Um, it's funny, I've met a lot of Islamic people. They think they're Muslims because they were born in Muslim countries. It's an interesting thing how Christians almost do the same thing or Americans do the same thing. But a real Christian is simply, it's not a person who goes to church or gives their tithe and offering or um, you know, wears a fancy smile on their face all the time. A real Christian is a person who says, I'm a sinner who needs to be saved and I accept the work that Jesus did on the cross for me in my place. You accept it with your mouth, you actually speak that out. Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave, you will be saved. That's what a Christian is. So maybe you've gone to church all your life, but the question I would still ask is, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Don't sit around at ease and have fun with everything that we have and all of our wealth and comforts and still be unsaved because there is a looming calamity coming and you need to make sure you're saved for that from your sins. Would you bow your heads, please? And I'd like to take several minutes here and kind of close this service out carefully and prayerfully. First thing is, who wants to be saved? That's my question. Do you wanna accept Christ? Man, this is a great opportunity. I'd like to pray with anyone who wants to repent of their sins and accept Christ as their savior right this minute. I won't embarrass anybody. I won't make you do anything strange or weird, but right where you sit, you can accept Jesus. Acknowledge your sin before God and be saved. Um, and do what Romans 10 verse nine and 10 says, to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus. Why wait any longer? Have your sins forgiven and be on the correct side of this thing. So if that's you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to do one thing. With everybody else's heads bowed, if that's you, would you acknowledge before me and the Lord, more importantly, I guess, you know, just to acknowledge, I wanna do this. I wanna accept Christ. If that's you, would you acknowledge that by raising your hand real quick? And I wanna acknowledge you, those of you that do it. I see you guys, that's awesome. Over here, cool. Way in the back there, I see you back there, good. Awesome, good, right here. You right here and you and you. Good, good, good. Over here, anybody? Don't let me miss you. Cool, good. I'm gonna pray a prayer of confession of faith. I'm gonna have the whole church pray this out loud because we love getting behind these 20 or so people who are saying yes right now. And we just wanna pray this prayer with you. But the Bible says if you pray this from your heart, through your mouth, a confession of faith, it says you will be saved. It's that simple. Well, how's it that simple? Jesus paid your price. He did the work on the cross so that you wouldn't have to be nails in hand, nails in feet. So you wouldn't have to die for your sins and, and suffer for eternity. Jesus took your penalty and that's what you're doing, accepting that work right now. Let's do that. Church, pray this out loud. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins that he rose up from the grave and that all my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, 
amen. Lord, would you just, as we often pray, Lord, wrap your loving arms around each person who's just confessed this faith. We know this is an emotional feeling um, as much or some um, thing that we're supposed to feel. But Lord, it is something that is mathematically just right. Your word says you died on the cross. If we accept it, you'll forgive our sins and you remember our sins no more. But I do pray that my brothers and sisters who have just confessed to you this, this morning, that they would have a sense of forgiveness that you don't hold their sins against them, even though the world still will remember sins and hold grudges, that you take our sins and put them as far as the East is from the West and remember them no more. So bless them. May they walk with you and serve you, Lord, uh, for the rest of their lives, we pray.